Praise the Lord, because he's good. God, you're so good. So good to me. Well done, Lucy. Anyway, you know what this Max said, um, doing the bread, and what we like to do here, and we've always liked to do, is give people a voice. Um, I like to try and help people who'd like to learn to preach or to teach, and we give them space. And sometimes the space is just a few minutes at the breaking of bread, um, and then a bit later on, they might want to do a short sermon or something like that. Um, but we want people who want to learn to do it to do it. And it's not easy, because standing up in public is not always an easy thing to do. But it's so much easier to share your faith one-to-one if you've actually stood in front of an audience, if you like. And I know you're not an audience, you're a congregation, but you get the picture. It's easier, because you build confidence. And I personally have built confidence in every area of my life over the last 37 or so years, because somebody gave me the opportunity to do a 15-minute sermon in a church over in Salford, and... And gave me feedback, you get feedback, if you take the feedback and you try and improve a little bit, you get more feedback the next time. And if you don't take the feedback, there is no next time. You know, <laughs> it's as simple as that, but that's the way it works. So, if you want to be um, a preacher, right, and sharing your faith is something you want to do, then just have a word. We'll see, we'll, we'll see what, what we can do. You know, a little while ago, the Pope said, you know the Pope? He said, it's wrong, wrong for Christians to try and convert people. Oh, he did. Yesterday, he said, he told the Muslims at a big meeting that Ramadan is just as important to us Christians as what it is to the Muslims. <laughs> he told them that. Now, we've got to preach the gospel because we can't have, have that sort of gunge going out all around the world without putting the truth in its proper place. We can't do it. Yeah. There are many antichrists in the world and the time is short. So we need to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and pluck as many as we can from the flames of hell before it's too late. So if you aspire to be a preacher, here's a good place to start. Because the book of Hebrews is the best book on preaching that you will ever find. Now there's hundreds of books on the subjects of preaching and I've got loads of them in my own library. And some of them are really good, like famous or, or, or really excellent preachers. And they've all got something of value in them. But they've all got a problem as well, one failing. And that is the ideas come from a person like me. You know, another person, different, different to me, but a person with a character of his own. And so the methods that they advocate, that they will try and teach suit their personality, their character, their style. But if you try and copy it, it doesn't work. But preaching's good. And if you want to do it, it's a great place to go. It will help you in every area of your life. Okay? But the writer of the book of Hebrews, he's preaching. This is not really a letter. It's a sermon. And it's been written down. And it's clearly a sermon to a group of people who need to hear a strong word from God, And he's trying to convey to them the lessons that he's learned from the Old Testament. He's preaching directly from the Old Testament. Nearly every paragraph in the book of Hebrews is a lift out of the Old Testament. Psalm 110 in a big way, but other, other parts as well. So and that's the whole purpose, isn't it, of preaching. The preacher 
needs to know the word of God first. And then they need to get it over to the hearers so that the hearers can apply it. They can do it. And if the hearer isn't going to apply what they hear from the pulpit to their own life, then they should go home and look in the mirror and ask themselves, why did I just waste two hours of a Sunday morning? Why am I hearing the word of God if I'm not willing to become a doer of it? That's a good question to ask. And every now and again, every Christian should probably ask it of themselves. Have I grown at all in the last year? Have I learned anything new today, in the last week or month or year or 10 years? Because I know some Christians who've been Christians for 30, 40, 50 years. They've never learned a thing. They got themselves a systematic theology 30 years ago and they're not going to move. They're not going to hear anything new. Even if the Holy Ghost stands bang in front of them and smacks them in the face with it. Honestly, you know that's true. You know people like that. What does that mean then? Okay, so pastor says this from the front. Should I believe every word he says? No. And I've never said that. Absolutely not. You should make it a part of a great conversation that's going on through your life and mine and, and the life of the church. And you should check. And you should go home and, and get before God. But if God says to you, yes, you should be doing that. Or no, you better stop that. Or whatever. And you say no. You aren't disobeying me. You're disobeying God. And that's a big responsibility on a preacher when you stand up here. So don't take it lightly. Yeah, I'd like to be a preacher. Okay. But it's a responsibility because you've got to rightly divide the word of God. And then if you do that, the responsibility passes to the hearer. And they then have the responsibility to do what the Lord has told them to do. And you've got to look past the style of the preacher. Oh, he gets up my nose. I probably get up loads of people's noses. I don't care. I'm just me. That's who I am. I'm not going to try and be anybody else. But you've got to look past that and say, but what is God saying in the word that's being spoken? And you know, forget about the style. Because we're talking about the book of Hebrews. And people have been questioning the style of the writer to the Hebrews for centuries only trying to prove who it is and isn't who wrote it, that's all. But that's, oh, it's not his style, it's not his. Well, it doesn't matter if it's his style or not. The fact that no one can, somebody say conclusively. I did it, I did it. <laughs> prove who the author is. He can't prove it. And, and just that fact alone says it's the Holy Ghost. He didn't want the people to know who it was. It wasn't necessary for them to know that right now. He just wanted the word of God to change their lives. And God's purpose in it is to change the way the hearers are living. Because they were going down a dangerous path. And he wants them to turn. Turn, that means repent. And one thing's certain. This preacher, I know it was Paul. don't care what anybody tells me. I know that, I know that, I know it was Paul. But it doesn't matter if it wasn't. I'm, I'm not bothered, I'll... I'll, I'll get a, a red X when I get there. See me later or something when I get to heaven. One of them things. It doesn't matter. But one thing I know about him is he knew his Old Testament. And if we want to get more out of this book of Hebrews, in fact, if we want to get more out of life, if we want to get more out of all of the, the, the New Testament, we've got to know our Old Testament like Paul did. We've got to know what happened in the history. Of, of Israel. And what's happening in the history now? It's going on. History's not finished. 
Anyway, this preacher refers to an Old Testament passage and he wanted to emphasize the fact that Jesus was both king and priest. And, and so the only way he could do that was to go back to this very obscure passage in Scripture, just three verses in the book of Genesis, and cite a man called Melchizedek. Now, these Jewish believers will have known their history. But this man, he just appears in those three verses, and then later on, one more verse in the Psalms, and it would be easy for them to forget about him. Because, you know, he doesn't kind of compare up with Abraham and Moses and David and all of those who've got masses and masses written about them. But that's where he goes, so that's where we're going. Chapter 13, or by chapter 13, Abram, and he's still Abram, not Abraham yet. He's still Abram. He's gone out, he's left Egypt, and he's settled in the Negev, about half of the landmass that, that Israel covers today. And the Bible says Abram was very rich. So it's all right to be very rich, according to my Bible. It's, don't feel ashamed if you're very rich. If anyone's very rich in here, welcome. But most of us are not. But, he, but Abraham was in livestock and in silver and in gold. And he had his nephew Lot with him. And he'd also become a very wealthy man. But wealth does bring its problems. You think, no, no, I, I don't, I'll, I'll chance it. Well, maybe. But it does bring its problems. And the problem was... The flocks were so big, there weren't enough grass. It's like one of these old cowboy movies, you know, and they have to keep moving the sheepmen on and, and shooting them and things like that because they're sheep eating our grass. And, and it was like that. It was like that. We didn't have enough land to support them. And so there was battles beginning to come between the, the, the men of, of Abraham and the men of Lot. But Abraham's a man of God. The men of God come up with solutions Men of God are solution-oriented. They don't really want to fight. If they have to fight, they will. But if there's a better way, they'll find it. So he says to Lot, look, there's a big country out there. That's another cowboy movie. Let's separate and move apart until we find enough land to satisfy everybody. And I'll tell you what. You choose which way you would like to go. And now go the other way. Now that is a diplomat. That is a diplomat. So Lot chose. And he chose the well-watered plains of the Jordan Valley. And he moved close to Sodom, where the people were extremely wicked and constantly sinning against the Lord. Genesis 13, 13. It's not me saying that. We all have to make choices like that in life. And some of them turn out to be eternal. And choosing the green, green grass of Sodom over the Lord's righteousness was Lot's big mistake. But Abraham trusted God. And we have an eternal consequence of his choice in the next verse or the next few verses that follow. Really important verses that show us the sovereignty and the majesty of God even now in these last days. Look at them. Genesis 13, 14. After Lot had gone, Lot missed it, he's gone. The Lord said to Abram, look as far as you can see in every direction, north and south, east and west. I am giving all this land as far as you can see to you and your descendants as a permanent possession. 
and I will give you so many descendants that like the dust of the earth, they cannot be counted. Go and walk through the land in every direction, for I am giving it to you. So Abram moved his camp to Hebron and settled near the oak grove belonging to Mamre. There he built another altar to the Lord. You know what? You're building an altar to somebody or to something. Make sure that you build your altar to the Lord. You know, but Abraham felt really sad. There's a lot left and all the people, you know, they were all friends and relatives and stuff. And they're all wandering away. And they've been together a long time. But it was a solution and it was a good solution. And I'm sure that the sad parting was difficult. But sometimes we do have to let people go. But God said to Abram, I'm giving you all this land as far as you can see. To you and your descendants as a permanent possession. So what's permanent mean? It means forever. So even though Abram's descendants went down into Egypt for 430 years, under his grandson Jacob, because it was a famine, And they even became slaves there. God still brought them back under the leadership of Moses to the land that he had promised. And he brought them in to the land under the leadership of Joshua. And they lived in that land for centuries. And sometimes they served God and they obeyed God. And other times they disobeyed God and they drifted away and they whored after other gods. Until eventually God's patience ran out and judgment came. And they were carried off to Assyria and to Babylon. But God still brought them back again to the land that he had promised as a permanent possession. And they came back. And their Messiah came. All that they'd waited for since the days of Abraham and and, and Moses. The Messiah came. And they refused to accept him. And this time it was the armies of the Roman Empire that brought judgment. And even though their cities were destroyed and they were scattered throughout the world. For 1,900 years, God brought them back again. How is that possible? Because God said to Abraham, I'm giving all this land, as far as you can see, to you and your descendants as a permanent possession. And when God says permanent, he means permanent But it wasn't just Abraham and Lot living in the land back then. The Bible says at that time Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land. And I guess it's a land as we look now. If you go home on your TV, someone will get killed there today for sure. Someone will get blown up every day. It's always been the same. And I guess it's always been that way because back in Abraham's day, there was a battle between nine armies, five kings against four kings. And Abraham was there, but he was staying out of it. Nothing to do with him. This battle was going on. Um, But you can't always stay out of trouble. Trouble will come running after you. It will find you. And so one of Lot's people escaped. He'd been captured and he escaped. And he came to tell Abram um, that King Keroleoma of Elam had plundered the defeated Sodom and Gomorrah. And he'd carried Lot and all his people and his possessions away into captivity. So Abraham, well, I suppose we've got to get involved then. You know, he got 318 men together, the SAS, right? And he went after Kedaleoma and he recovered everything. He recovered lots and his 
women and his children and, and everything, and all the other captives as well that had been taken from Sodom and Gomorrah. And two men came out to meet Abram as he returned from the victory. Two men. One was the king of Sodom. And he said to Abram, give back my people who were captured, but you may keep for yourself all the goods you have recovered. Abram could have kept it all if he'd have wanted. He didn't care what the king of Sodom said. But anyway, he's, he's a polite man, much more polite than me. So he said, no thanks. I don't want anything from you because I know that later on you'll use it against me. You'll use it to say you blessed me. We all get those offers. The world's always got something to offer. Do not compromise with sin because there's a stain that cannot be removed. But someone else came out. Someone else came out to celebrate the victory. Genesis 14, 18 says this, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem and a priest of God most high brought Abraham some bread and wine. Don't miss what happened there. That's the first time in scripture we read about what we just did. The bread and the wine. Jesus did it with his disciples. We do it. But it started with Melchizedek when he blessed Abram. Verse 19. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. Now that's what you call tithing. Abraham just sent the king of Sodom away with a big chunk of the spoils, right? Because he wasn't bothered about the spoils that much. But he sent the king of Sodom away with them, but then he still chose to tithe from what was rightfully his to this king of Salem. Abraham, if you read his story, he could not stop the flow of blessing from God on his life. He had setbacks. He did. He made mistakes. He sinned like the rest of us. But he trusted God. Years ago, about 37 years ago, actually, I was reading my Bible and nobody told me I was supposed to start at Mark's gospel or any of that stuff. God said to me, read my word. So I started at Genesis because that's the beginning and that's the way I read books from left to right. And I started reading it and I just got past where we are now. And I got into the next chapter, chapter 15 and verse 6. And it smacked me so hard. He said, Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Actually, I was reading the Living Bible, and I can still remember it to this day, the way it said it. It said, Abraham believed God, and God considered him righteous on account of his faith. And I remember running to find Steppy. It's 37 years ago, but I remember it as if it was yesterday, because I knew it was the key. I knew it was the only thing that really matters. It was all that it takes. I knew I didn't measure up, and that was getting to me, because I've been trying and trying and trying, and I know I'm not good enough. But God spoke to me in that verse and he says, you don't have to be good enough. This is all it takes. Abraham believed God and God considered him righteous. Do you believe me? I said, yes, Lord. He said, you're righteous. Glory. Boom. I don't know if you remember that, but it was awesome. 
It was a turning point in my life. Hallelujah. If you don't measure up, don't worry. Get on your knees. Measure down. Say, Jesus, I believe. That's all it takes. You know, it's not been smooth. So I heard somebody once say, a preacher say, if somebody tells you they've never doubted, they're lying. I'm telling you, it's not the I, I, I've never doubted, and I'm not lying. I've never doubted that God would bring me through. I've come through all kinds of stuff, difficulties and, and troubles and problems and all of the rest of it, right? I'm not saying it's been smooth running all the time, but I have never doubted that God would bring me through. So to tell you that, that it's not true. Anyway, Steppy and I went for a meal the other night. Tuscany up the road. Tuscana. It's really nice. If you've not been there, I recommend it. See, I'm, I'm, I'm advertising a local business. Because we've been there quite a lot. We have fillet steaks. They were like this, with prawns on top. Oh, man, they were gorgeous. And we had stars and desserts and wine. And eventually they brought the bill. I knew it was going to be a big bill, so I didn't even bother looking at it. He put it down in one of them black folders, you know. And, and I just took my card out of my pocket and put it on top. I don't want to know what it says in there. Just take it. Right? And uh, he picked up the card and he did his stuff. And he said, do you want a receipt? Steppy says, yeah, he does. He hasn't even looked at the bill. But why didn't I look at the bill? Really, why? One, because I trusted that fella. I've been there a few times. A real nice guy. I know he's not going to do me wrong. I trusted him. Two, because the food and the company was so nice. I didn't want to ruin it thinking about money. Because money's not that important. You know? And I just didn't want to ruin it with that. And three, and this is the most important thing. Because I know that God is my provider. And he'll help me pay that bill and the next bill and all the bills. And I don't have to worry. Because he's my God. And when Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek, it wasn't a legalistic thing. It wasn't a law thing. There was no law. For another 500 years, there was no law. A bit later on, his grandson Jacob said in Genesis 28, I'll read it, Genesis 28, 22. If God will be with me, think about this. You, you think this is me, I'm saying this. It wasn't. If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, and Yahweh will be my God, then this stone that I have set up for a pillar will be God's house. All of that you give me, I will surely give the tenth to you. So it wasn't a law thing for Jacob either. He's just decided to tithe. It wasn't a law thing. For Abraham, it was a trust thing. It was a faith thing. But you might be saying, well, I can't afford to tithe in these difficult times. Somebody else might say to you, well, you can't afford not to tithe in these difficult times. It's not a law thing. And I'll tell you this, no one wants to bring you under law here. I don't want to bring you under law. If you don't feel it's right for you, don't do it. Right? You'll still be saved. It won't affect your salvation. But the book of Hebrews is not about bringing sinners to salvation. It's about bringing sons to glory. It's about your inheritance. And, and that's partly about the rewards that you'll get when you get to heaven. But when Melchizedek blessed Abraham, he talks about God defeating his enemies on earth. 
and about the blessings that he would enjoy on earth. And God doesn't need your tithe or mine. I can promise you, Melchizedek did not need Abram's tithe. He was a king. And we don't even know where Jacob's tithe went. We don't know who we paid him to. But we do know that both men were blessed and blessed and blessed while they were on the earth. And God's willing to put his name on the line to prove that blessing. He still is. Maybe, I haven't got time now. I was going to read a bit from Malachi 3. Uh, Maybe you could read it for yourselves later. I'll just tell you what verse 10 says. Verse 10 says this. Malachi 3.10, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. And then he says something really weird, I think, from a God, you know, a God, the God, the mighty El Shaddai God says to you and me, try it. Put me to the test. Mm, a bit scary, that, isn't it? But God says it, not me. Anyway, I'll leave that one with you. Meanwhile, let's try and find out why the writer is saying that Jesus was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Because all the priests were supposed to be descendants of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. And so Jesus was not legally allowed to be a priest because he was descended from Judah. And you might say, well, Jesus is Jesus. He could do whatever he likes. But no, he can't. That's a wrong thinking. He can't do whatever he likes. They're his rules and his principles, but he has to keep them the same as everybody else. And Jesus came to fulfill the law. So under the law, the priests had to be children of Aaron. Anyway, that was my introduction. So if we go to our passage for today which is Hebrews chapter 7, I'm going to read it. Hebrews 7 from verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem and also a priest of the Most High God, or of God Most High. When Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings, Melchizedek met with him and blessed him. Then Abraham took a tenth of all he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of justice and king of Salem means king of peace. There, sorry, there is no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors. That doesn't mean he didn't have any, just says there's no record, okay? No beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the son of God. And this is a very important verse, verse 4. This is for them. He's writing to the Hebrews, but he's not, you know, he's writing to you and me. And he says, consider then how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. I will finish the rest of it, even though perhaps... Now, the law of Moses required that the priests who were descendants of Levi must collect a tithe from the rest of the people of Israel who were descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek 
who was not a descendant of Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham, and Melchizedek placed a blessing upon Abraham, the one who had already received the promises of God. And without question, the person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than the one who is blessed. The priests who collect tithes are men who die. Men who die. So Melchizedek is greater than they are because we are told that he lives on. In addition, we might even say that these Levites, the ones who collect the tithe, paid a tithe to Melchizedek when their ancestor Abraham paid a tithe to him. For although Levi wasn't born yet, the seed from which he came was in Abraham's body when Melchizedek collected the tithe from him. Hopefully that's clear. So what he said there, Aaron, as a high priest, was a type of Christ. He was. There were so many respects in which the priesthood of Aaron fell short, far short of what the priesthood of Christ was supposed to be. Aaron's priesthood administered the law, the law, okay? But Paul, in writing to the Romans, said this, the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us. We've broken the power of sin. It's been broken in our lives as we're being sanctified. right? An end to sin's control over us. Giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. That's Romans 8.3. So God's son himself was the sacrifice but the sacrifice has to be administered by a priest and the priest in the line of Aaron couldn't do that because they were all sinners as well they had to make sacrifices for their own sins before they sacrificed the goats and the bulls and the, the, for the for the sins of the people so another priesthood had to be found and those three verses we read in Genesis 14 are the only verses in the books of Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible, where Melchizedek's even mentioned. And then a thousand years later, there's one line in a psalm by King David, Psalm 110. It's the most quoted passage in the old, of the Old Testament, quoted in the New, and it says this. The Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You, talking about Jesus, a thousand years early, but still Jesus. You are a priest forever. In the order of Melchizedek. And another thousand years later, it came to pass. No king could be a priest. And no priest could be a king under the law. They came from different tribes, Judah and Levi. Yet Christ must be a king and a priest. He has to be king if he's going to rule and reign in the earth. But he has to be a priest to intercede between men and God. And Christ's priesthood is no ordinary priesthood. It's a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. And it's not like the other priests under the law who served for a few years and retired or died and then were replaced. Jesus is our high priest forever. There's that permanent again. And notice in Psalm 104, the Lord has taken an oath. When God, when God swears, God will not go back. Sometimes God says, I'm going to do something and men repent and pray, and plead with him, and he changes his mind. You know, think of Nineveh, or there's others. But, but when he makes an oath, that's the end. He can't go back. And he's sworn an oath. 
And Paul's hoping, or the writer, go on, I'll, I'll renege a little bit. The writer and the preacher is hoping that the readers will just grasp how great this Melchizedek was so they would far better understand how great Christ is as their high priest. And the Hebrews, they place great honor and glory on Abraham as the patriarch, the father of the chosen people, the friend of God. And they place great reverence on Aaron, who was the representative God as his high priest, and on the worship that he administered and the law that was given from heaven as a token of God's covenant with him. But here the writer has proven, in court if you like, you'd take this to court, it will, it will be thrown out. It's absolutely factual. There's no case against Christ being the high priest. It's who he is. I don't care what world religion would look at him, what, what group of intellectuals would look at it and say, no, it's all myth, it's all wrong. No, it's proven in the courts of law. He's more than Abraham. He's more than Aaron. He's more than the priesthood. He's more than the law. And he who blesses is superior to all those who are blessed. And who is it? This is the question is, who is it that blesses you? Paul wrote this to the Hebrews. I know he did because they were, they were looking back. Some of them were going back. They were in a bad place. They were not pressing on. And he wrote because he wanted them to get the best for their inheritance to be the best for them to press on. But you know, so many Christians today, so many are in the same place as the Hebrews were. They see Christ as a fulfillment of what Aaron typified. You know, not as a great high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. They had their Old Testament laws, and now they've just replaced them with a bunch of New Testament laws. And Christ's death and his shed blood are precious, surely, and they seek to rest their faith in him, but somehow it's become a ritual. It's not a relationship. It's become something I have to do. Well, you should do it, but you should want to do it. They have so little of the peace and joy, and I speak to people all the time, and I'm thinking, are you really a believer? Are you really trusting God? Because he will come through for you in this. They don't get it. You know, and, and they may have been walking the pathway for years, but they've not walked... They've walked the same path every day for 30 years. You're supposed to walk a journey that's different every day for 30 years or whatever length of time it is. You know, they do believe that he's ascended to heaven. We heard it from Max before. He's sitting at the right hand of God, interceding. Advocating was the word that he used, right? And, but that's not their daily spiritual experience. They think they're on their own in this, that God doesn't even think about them, doesn't give them a second thought, yet Jesus is up there in heaven interceding every single day. No. And life for so many Christians is a slog. Some of them can't wait to die and go to heaven. Honestly. They don't know, or should I say, they're not experiencing their heavenly calling and his all-sufficient impartation. They can live like him. Paul wrote this to the Hebrews because he wanted them to live like Jesus. He wanted this to be their experience. But it's been preserved for us these 2,000 years because that's what he wants for us. 
He wants it to be our experience. Christianity is an experience. It is not a, rela- a, a religion. It is a relationship with a living, great, high priest who has paid every, every drop and iota for every sin, for everything. He's brought you into the presence of God. You can come boldly in time of need to find the grace to help. And Peter wrote to these same dull Backward people, Peter, and said, by his divine power, this is 2 Peter, second epistle, by his divine power, God has given. Not he's coming to give, he's going to give, he's willing to give. No, God has given us everything we need for a godly life. So I'm asking you, and I'm asking you on Facebook, Right? I'm asking you, if you know your Christian life is coming short of what God wants for you, will you make a change today? Will you put your foot down in the heavenly places today? And will you turn? And that means repent, as I said before. Repent of your lukewarmness. Repent of your unwillingness to obey the word of God. Repent. Those Christians that are not in church, I know some have good reason, but other Christians say, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. I'm sick of that gunge. Of course you do. You don't have to come to this one. Go to another one. But go somewhere. And stop using the word of God to to get your own evil way. I'm telling you. It's time. We're in the last days. When the Pope's saying we're all right to celebrate Ramadan. And you're not supposed to preach Jesus. And he's supposed to be the head of the Christian church. Not mine. Right? But... When that's happening, those are the days we're in. It's time. Stamp your foot. Say, I want all the fullness. I want all the power of heaven moving in my life. I want what Jesus wants for me. And he's not planned any defeats for me. He's only planned victory. And I'm going to live in victory. And as I come back with the spoils like Abraham did, I'm going to receive the blessing. And I'm going to give my tithe. And I'm going to be a soldier of the Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. Why don't we sing a song? Glory. I went off script there. What should we sing? I surrender. What about that? Oh, you got it. Hallelujah. <laughs>